Welcome to Silver Lining, the podcast where we ask academics how East Asian states view themselves and how they relate to each other in the wake of the COVID pandemic. In today's episode, Columbia PhD candidate in East Asian history, Peter Moody, takes a close look at Korea, breaking down how imagery and music are used as ideological tools in the North, how sports diplomacy has enabled engagement between the North and the South, and how girl bands and Kim Jong-un's sister are reshaping gender relations in the region. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Well, thanks so much for agreeing to speak with us. Where, where are you based at the moment? I'm in, uh, well, in Kimpo, right outside Seoul. Um, right I now. actually saw your room and it really reminded me of a Korean room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. They yeah. have the, the sessions, the Korean um, <laughs> rooms and the home yeah. design and everything, so. How long have you been there for? I've been here uh, since September. I was on a Fulbright grant, and that was since uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of on that note, we wanted to start off by asking you about, you know, just telling us about yourself as well as your journey through Colombia and perhaps in Korea at the moment as well. So, oh, where should I start? Um, maybe when I was uh, like you guys uh, in my Uh, third and fourth year of undergraduate, I was really interested in uh, in East Asian uh, cultures, uh, particularly um, East Asian religions and specifically Buddhism. So I took a Zen Buddhism class and we learned about Indian, uh, Chinese and Japanese Buddhism, but we didn't learn anything about Korean Buddhism. And so uh, just looked on a map, Korea was right between uh, Japan and China. And so I thought that there must have been something that happened in Korea during the transmission from uh, China to Japan. And so um, so that curiosity brought me to Korea and, um, and I grew very interested with um, the um, uh, kind of religious diversity in Korea with, um, with shamanism, urban shamanism in some cases. Um, and then you had uh, Buddhism and, uh, and then also uh, Christianity in South Korea, which is really big. And um, so I really, I wanted to study Korean religions originally, but then I looked in a book of religion and there was one chapter about uh, Juche in North Korea. And I looked at like Juche from a, which is a North Korean ideology uh, to, from the perspective of, of a religion. And, um, and I'm not sure if I was, I bought the argument, but it really got me curious about a whole other Korea that that I had never been exposed to, and uh, what that might be like as well. And so, um, so I took a North Korea clo- history colloquium cl- class in my master's program. I did a master's of East Asian studies, and um, and then I found out about one particular period, a worker mobilization period called the Cholima, the Thousand Lee Horse Campaign, and there was. Um, I was dissatisfied with what was talked about. It was said it was the Great Leap Forward in North Korea, but I I wanted to highlight its indigenous aspects. So I wrote my master's thesis of that on that, and then I, as I was researching that, I just saw music was just a huge part of that campaign, and that's what led me to really pursue uh, North Korean music for the topic of my dissertation. So that's somewhat condensed, um, but. 
that's how I got to where I am. Thank you. We saw that like a lot of your work is focused on music and uh, mm -hmm. the popular discourse in North Korea today, and we're really interested in them specifically. Um, and for the paper that you wrote on production to consumption, you discussed the emphasis on consumption in the popular discourse in North Korea and its effects. Um, so we we're just wondering whether you could walk us through what exactly this discourse of plenty was and how it served to distract from the reality of underconsumption in North Korea. So uh, that's a very good question. I thank you for asking that. Uh, so when people think of uh, kind of socialist communist societies now, uh, they typically associate um, works of art with, with themes of labor. And, um, and that's a very big part of them. But you also see uh, in certain periods, um, this emphasis on, on plenty. Um, so the discourse of plenty comes from a work by Karen Patron, a historical work called Life Has Become More Joyous Comrades. And it's about the Soviet Union and that in times of uh, scarcity um, in the 1930s, uh, particularly during holiday season, there was kind of the featuring of, of lavish kind of gifts and, and particularly food. So discourse of plenty just means like references to material abundance, particularly for food. And um, I believe it comes from this acknowledgement that the way to motivate people is more to focus on the fruit of the labor rather than the labor itself. Um, but in a, a society where there's some shortages, it can, it can kind of mask uh, a reality of what's, taking, what's, what's actually under consumption um, and, and, and shortages and everything. So uh, that's how I got into the idea uh, I thought that there was not enough emphasis on something that you just see all over North Korean propaganda, including songs, which is just about how much there is. The reason why consumption relates to the personality cult is because it's, it's a way to um, make uh, citizens of the North Korean society associate everything that's plenty of food with, as, as like a gift from a dear leader. And at the same time, you had these references. There are also these gifts from the dealer, leader to, to the great leader, that was Kim Il-sung, to the people. And, um, and so loyalty becomes a means to uh, material abundance and everything. And so um, that's how something like um, consumption can work in a, a non-capitalist society. I think that's really um, clarifying the concept for us. Um, but just a follow-up question to that. Um, mm -hmm. like we were just wondering how this discourse of consumption um, served to not remind people of the, of the actual fact of the, the lack of things to be consumed um, and actually serves to help them see um, or just believe in the abundance of the fruit of labor instead of the scarcity of things if consumption is emphasized as such is there a specific strategy and maybe as you said you could link to the specific north korea context so i believe that it comes from um, one way it comes is from uh music um, when people are uh, 
working, if you want to motivate people to work more, um, there's this anticipation that there's going to be this reward that comes after that. So if you're, you're singing about it, if you're hearing songs about that, um, you can kind of imagine it in your head as you're, you're working. And um, for North Korea, um, there was kind of some economic uh, development within the, the late 1950s with these speed campaigns and, and throughout the, the 1960s. So at that time, things weren't as bad as they were, say, in the 1990s with the, with the, uh, with the famine um, that was just completely devastating to the North Korean um, society and population. And so um, I think at that time they could make a more persuasive case. Uh, later um, in the 1990s, you don't see as much of these. It's more about uh, sacrifice, weathering the storm. Um, the arduous march was the kind of uh, discourse for the, the famine period that no matter what we have to sacrifice, we will do it. And, um, and so I think it's, there's this dialectic between um, that it can be effective for a certain period, but then it kind of lose its, um, its prowess once um, the reality kind of catches up to it. It's interesting to know that the power of music kind of shifts according to, to time periods. And um, so like it sort of ties in with our other question about um, music in North Korea today, if you have anything to share about that, like uh, what is the regime defined by in this era and how um, it, does that tie in any way to the popular music being consumed in North Korea today? So it's, it's more of a, a pendulum, I would say, in North Korea now than something that just develops in a linear respect. I think originally North Korea, like other communist societies, had a prevalence of, of, of marches, mass songs, which is kind of just uh, something more minimalistic in terms of the, the instrumentation and uh, just a few instruments like, like a flute, a, a piano, or, or a accordion, um, versus something more elaborate with uh, light music that um, with, with like brass sections and then later electronic instruments. And so, uh, so originally music production along the socialist realist kind of perspective became somewhat limiting in terms of how much it was motivating people, particularly people of the younger generation. So that's when the state started to uh, look for more catchy kind of sounding music. And with that, to have kind of light music uh, as opposed to just uh, a few instruments. And, um, but I mean, it really depends on the context though. I mean, that's maybe for for mass media, but um, of course they have to maintain some of the other aspects for when people go to the rural areas and want to motivate farmers. Um, so some of that is preserved. But, uh, but recently there was a, an editorial published in the Nodong Shinmun and it said about the, the dangers of uh, music that becomes too popular because there's, um, there's, all, there's this reference to the the yellow winds coming from um, China and, and South Korea of, of music that's too much tied to uh, capitalism. 
but but to, to be very specific though, um, when Kim Jong-un became president, there was a band um, that started called the Moran Bong Band. And this was a band that had, um, was notable for its electronic strings and as well as electronic guitars. And, um, and then so, and then the, and the outfits that the women were wearing um, looked very glitzy and everything. So from what I've heard from uh, Chinese students that have studied in North Korea, um, they attracted a fandom of, of young women who really got excited about them and wanted to be them and uh, kind of uh, wanted to dress like them and have their hairstyles and everything like them. But meanwhile, they're singing about ideology. They're singing about um, uh, being loyal to, to the Kim family, uh, studying and um, not giving up hope and having uh, socialist patriotism and everything. So I think they think that can be effective um, up to a point, but then the medium becomes more powerful than the message. And then, then it has to maybe be kind of, uh, it has to take a back seat. It has to like go backwards a little bit. It's, it's gone too far. But then later, there's a need to kind of motivate people more. So they may try something with more of a popular appeal later. So it goes back and forth. To just kind of shift gears a little bit, we want to talk more about your work about sports and music diplomacy in particular. Despite the fact that, you know, this might be the only means of, of communication to a certain extent between the two countries, um, you've also mentioned that there are perhaps distinct motivations for both North Korea and South Korea to engage in this type of diplomacy. Could you perhaps touch on where they converge and where they diverge in terms of these motivations? That's a very good question. And I think it really depends on the precise time period. I think it, it differs. I think that states have different objectives at uh, particular times. North and South Korea um, had both sports and music diplomacy in uh, 2018 with the Pyeongchang uh, Olympics. And I think where the two motivations converge was in having some, uh, just an opportunity for uh, domestic legitimacy of who the, 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 the ruling government was. So, uh, so both North and South Korea uh, wanted the, um, their people to think that the governments were, were capable and, and kind of uh, uh, making people more secure by engaging in this kind of diplomacy. Um, where they diverged, I think, is um, related to the sunshine policy, which in, um, was a South Korean um, political strategy to uh, pursue engagement uh, with the North um, as a strategy um, to um, having more uh, peaceful relations. And... Um, and just having security in the East Asian region generally. And so um, this was modeled under the West German uh, kind of approach to East Germany. The goal was more to, to have things open up, for things to be less restrictive, uh, particularly in the North, uh, while North Korea, on the other hand, has more of an interest, the, the government at least, and keeping things a lot more restricted. Um, but North Korea's primary motivation, I think, for engaging in sports diplomacy and music diplomacy with the South was they wanted to 
pursue some kind of denuclearization and um, normalization agreement with the United States. I believe that was their end game. And, um, and they thought that by doing it with South Korea could, could help that process uh, move along. And, um, and it hasn't happened yet. And so that may be why North Korea is less excited and less interested in engaging in, in this kind of diplomacy more recently. I believe uh, 2019, about a year ago, um, there was a World Cup uh, uh, qualifying match between North and South Korea. South Korea went to the North and there's this expectation this could be a new round of sports diplomacy, but North Korea made things extremely restrictive and there was no one in the stands at all. They didn't let any fans watch and they, they uh, recorded it, but they wouldn't let it be shown um, live. And, um, and so this indicates that North Korea has not gotten what it has wanted to get out of this, these sports exchanges. And, um, and so there's more work to be done if one believes in the principle of this kind of diplomacy. And perhaps um, the United States should be more involved and in, in, in perhaps learn from South Korea's example. It's fascinating to hear you talk about how sport and music diplomacy can be a space where nations and governments can come together. And we've been thinking about that a lot with COVID because COVID has demonstrated the interconnectedness and the rising geopolitical tensions between countries. And you mentioned with the yellow winds, some of the geopolitical tensions um, between North Korea and other players in the region. We were wondering how these global trends affect uh, North Korea. So it's certainly a negative development um, because despite uh, what um, is presented in the media a lot, uh, North Korea is not completely isolated. There's uh, people from the outside world coming in. It has dip diplomatic relations with um, several European countries. Um, and, um, and, and so there's, there's uh, diplomats inside in case there was some uh, contingency that, that issue, I believe there was a, um, there's an Australian uh, um, national who was in North Korea and he was um, abducted for maybe some of the, the, the media uh, kind of uh, activity he was doing. And it took a Swedish ambassador to kind of make sure that, that things wouldn't completely get out of hand. And so for that, for these emergency situations and everything, it becomes uh, something negative when, when diplomats had to move. I believe some of the diplomats had to move out very recently. And of course, with uh, opportunities for sports and music exchange, there's understandably more reluctance to doing anything that can have this kind of um, impact on a positive level. Um, it can also create distrust. I think all of us are uh, very familiar with the distrust between uh, China and, uh, and America over uh, COVID-19. Um, but there's also an opportunity. Um, the, there's when uh, countries are in need, um, they can signal goodwill a little more. Um, and uh, Kim Yo-jung, who is the sister of the North Korean leader Kim Yo Jung had um, Kim Jong Un had um, written letters to um, to America to Donald Trump in particular and kind of appreciated the U.S. government saying 
offering COVID relief, but, and then South Korea has also offered some uh, relief with floods as well, but um, North Korea has not really uh, been receptive to actually following through with it. So that can be, uh, it, it's, it's going to be hard to tell. I mean, perhaps we should consider some um, alternatives, like some, um, some people are now interested in digital diplomacy, like having more sessions like these, so we can understand like this common situation that we're all under in and have empathy for each other. Um, but I, I'm actually not sure. I, I would really like to think, see how things develop and, and then make a more uh, conclusion after that. What can we learn about North Korea's response to the virus? How does having a central personality figure affect their ability to deal with that? So at the same time, North Korea was, uh, so North Korea has claimed that it hasn't uh, had any cases. Um, and it's hard to, to trust that particularly, but I think at the same time, when you have such a controlled society, it's easier to, to manage people in, in times of um, pandemics, um, uh, particularly with, with issues like uh, vaccinations, uh, preparation, wearing masks, when you have such strict penalties, people are more compliant. Um, and that's one, that's just reality. But, um, but at the same time, though, that this COVID-19 was, there was these rumors that the leader had, had died, he had passed away, Kim Jong-un. And, um, and while those turn, didn't turn out to be true, um, he, he had to scale down his appearances. And that, that's something that actually did happen. And a lot of people, a lot of uh, North Korean watchers have surmised that the reason why he scaled down his appearances is because he was socially distancing like all of us. And he may have had some health um, issue as well, but we can't say that conclusively. And um, so kind of in the absence of Kim Jong-un having this public kind of presence everywhere, um, there was much more um, kind of public statements by his sister. And, um, and, and to the point where people were uh, saying she was going to be the successor and everything, which we definitely cannot say for sure. But this was kind of, um, became this kind of sharing of um, leadership in terms of public statements, um, even if like she didn't have as much power. So certainly a supporting role. So I think um, that has been somewhat a change. And I think it may um, kind of, because this uh, female um, leader is taking this leadership position in terms of making these uh, very um, authoritative uh, statements and everything, um, that it may have some impact on, on gender relations in, in North Korea. Um, and so, uh, and certainly with, with the way they present women in certain periods of COVID-19 um, preparation, uh, uh, prevention, prevention measures and everything, um, the prominent place women have. And so, um, so I, I can't say for certain because um, there's only, we can just look at, at media because so many of, of outsiders are having to leave North Korea at this time. But, um, but it's definitely something to, to look at in the future. I think it will have a strong impact on, on North Korean society for the long term.
That's fascinating. And I think the rumour of Kim Jong-un's death um, is a great example of the, the misinformation that you might have to deal with when you're researching the region. Yeah, we really want to thank you for like talking to us. It's fascinating to know more about North Korea since it's like such a specific niche area um, that we don't really know that much about. Thank you. Well, yeah, if you have any additional questions about both the research process or some of the, the content that I'm, I'm hoping to uh, kind of reveal more of and, and analyze a little more of, I'm, I'm happy to answer them. Thanks so much again, Peter. We'll be in touch. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Silver Lining with Yan Hua Chen, Ji Yun Moon and Jasleen Chagger. This podcast is a project from the Columbia Global Collaboratory, which seeks to tackle global challenges by cross-cultural collaboration. Thanks to our guest speaker this week, Peter Moody, and thanks to you for tuning in. See you again.